Good singing this evening. You may be seated. Good evening. We're continuing our series, first lesson last week, on uh, the normal Christian life. Uh, you should have notes. The notes are basically just a whole lot of scriptures because we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures uh, that talk to the subject. Um, just by way of introduction, I need to acknowledge that uh, the message you heard this morning and the message I'm going to bring are essentially the same message, just from different angles. And as is so often said here, neither Zach nor I knew what the other one was doing. It just so happens that the Holy Spirit led us to address the same subject. And that's a fairly common experience here. This morning, uh, Zach spoke about how we should live, not to become a Christian, uh, but because we are Christians with Christ's life in us. Uh, last week, we spoke about Paul's motivation and said his motive, what motivated the Apostle Paul should motivate us. And of course, what motivated him was two things. Firstly, the life of Christ inside him. And secondly, his love, his devotion to Christ. That's what motivated him to live the, the victorious life he lived despite a lot of difficulties. Um, tonight's uh, topic is living beyond our reality. 1 Corinthians 2.9 sums up this message for us. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We're going to talk about some of those things that we haven't seen, but that motivate us to walk with God. Let's begin by opening in prayer. Father, thank you so much that we can gather here once again. Thank you for the inestimable privilege of breaking the bread of life to hungry hearts. Bless us all, Lord. Bless the listeners. Bless me. Please help me as I share this word. And may each of us grow in the grace and knowledge of our great Lord and King, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I made the point last week, I'll make it again, that uh, the world is falling apart around us. The just are oppressed and the unjust are exalted. The old ways are forgotten. The old paths are full of weeds and broad, swift highways are leading multitudes to destruction. All of this is prophesied in the Bible, by the way. The extent of wisdom in our once wise and honorable leaders is to plead ignorance about what makes a woman a woman. Who knew that that day would come in America? It's as if the world has fallen through Alice in Wonderland's looking glass, where everything is backward and unreal. Amid such chaos, the question each of us has to face is, what is your reality? What is real to you in the midst of this chaos? What motivates you? What inspires you? What challenges you? What discourages you? What defeats you? What do you run from? What do you run towards? What do you live for? And what are you prepared to die for? 
these are real questions that real Christians have to face in these times. Answers to these fundamental questions about how we face life determine how we're going to live life. Day by day and in the hereafter. The Bible has all the answers we need. It also contains powerful instruction that motivates us to always move in the right direction. And the most important declaration of Scripture is the emphatic statement right on page one, the first three words, in the beginning, God. Without this fact, nothing else matters. Nothing else is possible. Without God as the first cause of everything, we are alone in a cold, dark universe. We exist without meaning and without purpose, except perhaps to live another day. But what's the point of living if there's, if there's no point to living? What does it matter if we live or die, if we don't know why we live? And when we are done with living, there's nothing. What's the point of that? Yet, the converse is also true. With God, everything is purposeful. Everything has meaning. And anything is possible. The most realistic people on earth are those who know and honor God. The true God. Those who live in a reality beyond what is real to our senses a reality beyond this present reality, this evil world that we live in. And Scripture encourages us to live beyond reality, not as people who are uh, perhaps out of their minds, not as people who want to avoid the obvious, but as people who know of a life beyond this life and know it is real. So let's look at some scriptures. You've got the list there, as I said, if you want to study these at home. That's why I've given them to you. Um, we'll begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 10. We won't actually turn there because we simply don't have time for it all. But I want to highlight the message of this passage. There is, there is a reality beyond what is comfortable. Um, Abraham discovered that God called him while he was living a very comfortable life in a very advanced civilization, Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham called him to go to a place that he'd never been before. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know how he'd get there. He didn't know what he'd find when he got there, and he didn't know how long it would take him. And yet, Abraham followed God. Why? The Bible tells us he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There's a reality beyond worldly attainment and worldly power, and that also we find in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 27. The main message there is about Moses. It says of him that he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses was invested in a God that he couldn't see, nobody else could see, but was real to Moses. And that reality led him to lead millions of whining, complaining, rebellious Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea onto the Promised Land. 
There's also a reality beyond impossible challenges. The wonderful story of Gideon's 300. Uh, and you'll find that in Judges chapter 6 and 7. You know the story. Gideon faces off against an army of over 100,000 trained soldiers with 300 men. Not only did he have this pitifully small number, they had all the wrong weapons. They had a trumpet in one hand and an earthenware jar with a candle in it in the other. What a ridiculous, pathetic attack. This 300 planned against 100,000, and yet they won a glorious victory. That was real because their God was real. And when they obeyed him, the victory was the, the victory was won. And so for each one of us, that story is in there to remind us, if you've got an impossible challenge in your life, it's not impossible to God if you'll just trust him, look to him, walk with him. Then we come to David. In David's life, there was a reality beyond desperate personal failure. David's story is well known to us. As the king of Israel, God's anointed, he committed both adultery and the worst kind of murder, premeditated murder, to get rid of the husband of the woman he had seduced. Two of the worst sins imaginable. But if you'll read Psalm 51, a psalm that I often reference and encourage you to read regularly, if you want to know what gets God's attention, read Psalm 51 and understand the meaning of repentance. Uh, I said last week, repentance is not saying you are sorry or you're going to try and do better. That's not repentance. Repentance is a broken-hearted cry out of the heart of a sinner exposed to the light. And that's how David approached God, broken-hearted. Have mercy upon me, O God. Have mercy upon me. It's against thee, thee only that I've sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And what is God's response? Well, if you go to Psalm 91 and verse 16, you'll see it there. In response to this desperate sinner who committed vile acts, God says, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Was God crazy for doing that? No. That's why Jesus paid the price for us. And when we come to God with a proper appreciation of our desperate need for that price to be paid on our behalf, God's response is always the same. He just opens the windows of heaven upon us and pours out his blessing. There's a reality beyond what seems fair. Mary and Martha, you can read their story in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Again, a well-known story. They both loved Jesus. And Martha tried to show her love to Jesus by getting very busy cooking dinner. And Mary, her sister, did nothing except sit at Jesus' feet and worship him. And when Martha complained about her lazy sister, Jesus put it into perspective and said, Martha, you're just too busy. Your sister has chosen the better part, and it shall not be taken from her. There's a reality beyond what seems fair. 
There's also a reality beyond loneliness and uncertainty. If you read Deuteronomy, that magnificent speech, basically Deuteronomy is is, um, the farewell speech of Moses. You get to chapter 31, and here he is commissioning Joshua to take over from him. Joshua, who was his servant for the last 40 years, Moses goes to him and says, God has chosen you. You're going to be the leader to take these people into the promised land. And you can imagine Joshua's fear and feeling of inadequacy. But Moses says to him, the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. There's also a reality beyond riches. Mark 8.36 What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? There's a reality beyond pain. The wonderful story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Acts chapter 16 verses 19 to 25 They've been out preaching. They've been doing God's will. They've been sharing the gospel. And for being so faithful to Christ they get beaten to within an inch of their lives thrown into jail, into a deep pit, shackled in the stocks, bleeding, broken. And at midnight, they sang hymns of praise. That's real. That's a reality beyond pain. Every obstacle you face, every defeat, every setback, God is more real than that. And Paul and Silas knew that and responded accordingly. There's a reality beyond death, and that reality is judgment. Everybody, every man and woman on earth, when we die, are going to be judged. Some of us will be judged for our sins, and some of us will merely be judged for how faithfully we walked with our Savior. You're either going to stand naked before your judge, or you're going to be clothed with the righteousness of your Savior. That's real. And lastly, there's a reality beyond this life. The resurrection. John 14, 19. Because I live, said Jesus, ye shall live also. That's reality. What a fantastic faith we have. What glorious promises. What a wonderful reality. Christ's resurrection makes possible a reality beyond every philosophy or diversion, hope or religion devised by human imagination. Theories, systems, rites, and superstitions are ultimately impotent to produce anything more than uncertainty for souls groping in darkness. And in glorious contrast, Jesus Christ offers the certainty of himself. I am the way, the truth, And the life, he said. What a reality. Beyond everything else. When everything else fails, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's a wonderful passage we can turn to together in Isaiah chapter 40 that speaks of this real God. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but it's worth reading reading the whole thing from verse 21 of Isaiah 40. Have you not known? 
Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, speaking of God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he also shall blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. These are the ones, the mighty of this earth, who are mighty in their own power, not in God's power. To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number, speaking of the, the stars in the sky. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speaketh, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. My friends, that is reality. Whatever ha happens in this life, Whatever fate befalls us, whatever dev the devil conjures up to try and resist us, the reality is this God we've just read about, the one seated in the heavens, the one who is all-powerful. And he says, just rest in me and I'll take care of everything. So let's take a moment to look at the paradox of Christian reality. This world is not our home. It will always be a secondary reality to those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And you can read that in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We cannot measure that new world by earthly experience the world beyond the veil. We can only know it by the inner light received from God at our salvation and by the word of God that teaches us to look beyond the obvious to what is real in God. And at this time in world history, more than at any other time, I believe, we need to get into the habit of looking beyond the obvious. And be sure that our focus is in this book and the promises of this book and the reality of the life within us. If you're a child of God, you have the witness in your spirit. You belong to him. That's the only reality you need to care about. And we can only know it by spending time in God's presence and by regular fellowship with God's people. Coming together as we do here. Sharing our faith. Sharing our delight in walking with God sharing our experiences, 
sharing our burdens. Scripture affirms how different we are in Christ and how different that heavenly word is by providing examples of the paradoxes arising from our life here while simultaneously seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5 of Revelation introduces us to a wonderful paradox. As John stands before the throne, weeping because no man in heaven or on earth is worthy to open the seals of the book, and an angel tells him, don't cry, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And John turns to see this magnificent, powerful, majestic lion. And there is a lamb. That's a paradox. Glorious paradox. In him, we are strong when we are weak. In him... We are rich when we are poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In him, slavery is freedom. According to Peter, 1 Peter 2.16, he tells us that we are those who are as free, should not use our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness or evil deeds. Because you've been set free, don't use that freedom to go and sin. But as the servants of God, and that word servants is bond slaves, we are free to the extent that we are slaves of God. Figure that one out. It's true. In him, we give to get, not the prosperity gospel, that cheap lie that is sold to so many people who gullibly take it in because they want to believe it's true, the prosperity gospel is nothing like what the Bible teaches. You want to get all of God, which is a lot. He expects you to give all of yourself. Don't hold anything back. In him, we bow low to soar high. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6, we are told how to live in accordance with God's will. And the steps we take are first sit, then walk, then stand. You know, our way is to walk, stand, and sit. We, we will try to walk with God so that we can stand strong with God and then rest in God. And God says, no, that's back to front. <coughs> you first got to rest in me. Then you'll be able to walk with me. And then you'll be able to stand against all the wiles of the enemy. And another paradox, death before life. I've already quoted Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christianity is a paradox. Don't try and think about your faith and your God and your walk with God in the way that the world would have you think. Think in the way that this Bible trains you to think. Think in the way that your teachers from this book teach you to think. It's nothing like the world. 
it's a whole lot better, more glorious. And by the way, every lesson you learn will stick with you for eternity. Hallelujah. Let's look closer then at the power of Christian reality. Now, by contrast to Christian, true Christian reality, there is, of course, the Christianity that isn't real. It's all around us. In empty buildings with tall spires, in empty sermons from empty vessels, in empty promises of fake prosperity and shallow happiness, in empty versions of love and peace. It is a Christianity that does not know the Bible and doesn't believe the parts of the Bible it does know. Real Christianity knows from experience. You've got to walk with God in order to begin to know God. You've got to eat the bread of life in order to grow in the knowledge of God. You've got to fellowship with each other. You've got to sit under the word of God in order to know God and to grow in God. We know from experience that the Bible is true, that its words are living and powerful, that the Savior whose light shines out of every page is alive and close enough for any hungry soul to reach out and touch. Real Christianity never confirm, conforms to worldly standards or worldly thinking, but always challenges them. It challenges human perceptions and pride and power. It challenges human vanity and human values. Real Christianity says, if you want all of God, be willing to give up all of yourself. If you just stop to think about that for one moment, when I surrender everything I am to God, he doesn't get much. And in return, I get all of him. And we are so dumb and so sinful, we actually want to negotiate that point. Can I give up maybe 80% to myself and get all of you, God? Or maybe 90%, maybe 90%. I just like to keep just a little bit back for myself. And God says, no, it's all or nothing. Jesus put it best, short, sharp, and to the point. If you want to be my close follower, prepare to die. Take up your cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23 to 25. Now, I remarked last week, that's not the sort of message that's going to draw the big crowds. But if you will believe it and heed it, your life will be changed in ways that you cannot imagine and delight you in ways that will put a spring in your step and a sparkle in your eye every single day of your life on this earth. If you doubt that, look again at the story of Paul and Silas in that hole in a Philippian jail at midnight. There's your answer. The first step is to die in the way that you think about God, die in the way that you think he is supposed to act and wants you to act. Exchange your perspective for God's perspective. Understand that when God says work, he means rest. When he promises fullness, he requires emptiness. He tells the meek they will conquer the mighty. He encourages an acknowledgement of weakness to receive his strength. And he requires you and me to be a servant long before you can begin to think of wielding a scepter, the symbol of authority. With God, the way up is down. 
Christianity is counterintuitive. If you want to please him, if you really want to please him, simply agree with him that he is smarter than you are and more powerful than you are and will do a much better job of running your life than you ever will. And if you disagree with this last proposition, take a look at your life and ask yourself, how am I doing so far? If your answer is that your life is just fine and your eternity is secure with you in charge, then why are you in church tonight? You should be at home relaxing in front of the TV. You've got it all together. The fact is, Paradoxes of life exist because God is real, in charge, and eternal, and does not live in our world. <clears throat> he invites us to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, a marvelous passage. And excuse me while I take a sip of water. So, what is your reality? Again, what motivates you? What do you run from? What do you run towards? What is it you're living for? And what is it that you're willing to die for? These are questions we should be asking ourselves. And then we should live according to the answers we find from God's word. The correct answer to all these questions flows from the correct answer to one all-important question. What is the meaning of life? And the answer to that question is very simple. The meaning of life is to know God. Period. That's it. That's the meaning of life. Know him. The Apostle Peter urges us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3, 18. Jesus taught that eternal life consists in knowing the only true God, John 17, 3. And Jeremiah declared the glory of knowing God. Let's look at that, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but him, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. If he is your hope of glory tonight, you are well placed to encounter whatever comes in these uncertain times. So let's, in closing, rehearse what we need to do to know God, the steps to knowing God. Knowing God is to know the eternal life that is so much more than our life. 
We begin to know God first by faith and then by experience. We must believe before we can see. And so by faith, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith in his word. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. In his word and then by his word. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus, recorded in John 6.63. There is life in this book. There is life in the words of Jesus. If you're ever down in the dumps, just go and read John 13 through 17 a dozen times, and I promise you, you'll feel a whole lot better, because that's Jesus talking directly to us. How do we get to know God? In his body. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 27. As the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And ye are the body of Christ. You may not feel like it. You may not even look like it. But if you are assembled here tonight because Jesus Christ lives in you and you're a member of this church, you make up the body of Christ in this local assembly. And we get to know God by his body as we gather together. The head, even Christ, this is Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted or held soundly together by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, or as each one does his or her part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The body grows in love, love for each other and love for our Savior. And then the final steps to knowing God in death by life. Galatians 2.20 again, I am crucified with Christ. I died with him on that cross. We're going to be talking about that in the next two messages. What it means to be crucified with him. Nevertheless, I live. Yea, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, what a wonderful life. What a wonderful reality. I live because Jesus lives in me. And by the way, that's not an empty statement. That's a reality that I know. Romans 8.16, his, his spirit witnesses with my spirit that I'm his child, his son. Galatians 4.16 says the same thing. And 1 John, three times in those few chapters, say, say it again. His spirit, the living spirit of the living God, lives in me and tells me I'm his. What a fantastic reality. What a glorious reality. In Colossians 1.27, Christ 
in you the hope of glory. So as I've already said, if that is true for you, you're well-placed to encounter whatever comes in these uncertain times. There is no darkness or uncertainty in our wonderful Savior, only light and more light. And that is our reality. Amen. Father.